You've found the Diggin' Oak Island podcast, a podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. Dave McBride, thank you again for downloading and for listening. Don't forget, you can help out the show by leaving us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, I invite you to join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Diggin' Oak Island. All right. Before we talk about this week's episode of The Curse of Oak Island, we do have some emails to get to. Our first one comes from a man in Kelt in Oregon who writes, After watching eight seasons of The Curse of Oak Island, all the podcast listens, and even reading a book or two, a question occurred to me that is so obvious I feel I must have heard the answer at some point and just forgotten it. Who named the money pit? And did the term mean then what it means now? After hearing the term so often meant as a literal pit full of valuables on the show for years, I'd forgotten that the very first time I'd heard them refer to it on the show, I thought they were being ironic. Webster's defines money pit as, quote, something that uses up a very large amount of money. (laughs) If that was always the meaning, whomever named the money pit was doing it not as an X marks the spot for a treasure below, but as a warning to not waste your time and money because others have already wasted a bunch of money there. I first heard the term money pit in the 1980s from my parents discussing a rental house they had that needed constant repairs. It was a metaphorical pit you threw good money into, never to be seen again. In 1986, there was even a Tom Hanks movie called The Money Pit about a disastrous home purchase of a house that everything fell apart on and needed constant repairs. I haven't heard the term much since until the show started. The recently discovered map from the 1880s marked the Tupper Shaft had Money Pit, or MP, he wrote, marked on the Money Pit location. So it was named as such at least that long ago. Do you know uh, how the Money Pit got its name and if it was tongue-in-cheek then or if the na- if the term has changed meaning since? Please keep up the fantastic listens and thank you for doing what you do. Kelt. Okay, my friend. Um, I honestly feel a little bit like the way you felt in the beginning. When you sent me this question, Uh, it is an obvious question and it is one that I feel like I know the answer to, but I can't tell you anything in specific. I don't know of somebody of the person who first coined the phrase money pit for it. Um, And I'm not sure anyone has a real and solid answer for that. And I'm not going to pretend to know the answer either. But let me tell you what has always kind of been my understanding of the origin of the name money pit. And if I'm incorrect, then. I mean, there's so many listeners out there who've read a lot of books and probably has this at the top of their mind. Just email me and let me know the right answer, and then we'll let uh, Kelt know further on down the road in a future episode. But as far as I have always understood it, the term money pit was a term that actually predates the Oak Island mystery, and it meant then exactly what the words are telling us now, a pit where you put money. So remember, this is a time when you know, pirates and buried treasure were incredibly popular in the culture. Uh, And people were looking for buried treasure everywhere. And the term for that was money pit. Now, I'm not sure if a buried treasure is exactly where that term money pit originated. But either way, uh, it was a term in use before 1795 to describe exactly what Daniel McGinnis was hoping he found here on Oak Island, right? So you can see why this phrase would be applied to what they found. As far as the term being used to describe a crappy old house, like in the movie you mentioned, 
Or you also hear a lot of boat owners using this phrase, right, to describe a boat that they're just perpetually fixing, which happens a lot with boats. Uh, Now, when the phrase picked up that meaning, I'm not sure exactly when that is. But it seems that came along much later, right? You know, I don't know. Maybe even the movie invented it. I don't think so. But I I don't think it it predates the movie by all that much. Who knows? Um, The fact that it also applies ever so appropriately to the Oak Island treasure hunt seems to be nothing more than a happy accident. Um, You know, when people call, it's also a proper noun with the money pit. You know, that's capitalized in a lot of places. It is a location. That is now the name for this. And I'm pretty sure... The name and the use of the term money pit predates the idea of so many people coming and just pouring money into the treasure hunt. Does that make sense? So it it feels like when the term money pit used to describe the movie (laughs) matches matches with the money pit in Oak Island, it seems like that didn't happen, right? People didn't consider the money pit in Oak Island a place to just flush your money down. Until after it had already been named that, if that makes any sense. Again, I might have this wrong. This has always just sort of been my understanding of the money pit and its name. Uh, Thank you for the email. Thank you for the kind words about the show. I certainly hope to hear from you again, and I hope that we can get you a better answer if I'm not correct. Now, let's go now to Tom in New York who asks, Hi, Dave. I'm a faithful listener to your podcast every week and look forward to the podcast, sometimes more than the show. Oh, come on. Uh, My wife and I watch the new episodes with hopes of a major discovery rather than, as my wife says, did they find another beer can tab or paperclip? Now, okay, let me stop here because Tom's got some more he's asking here. But I just wanted to say that my wife is starting to get that way, too. Uh, She was all in on this show for six seasons. And then towards the end of season seven, and certainly into this season, she's begun this slow slide into the skeptical pool, right? For years, we always sat together on the couch every Tuesday, faithfully. She was just as excited as I am, as I was, to watch a new episode. My guess is without something found, like the lead cross or that sort of thing, uh, without something new like that, I'm going to be watching alone. Well, she heads into the other room to watch what seems to be just an unending stream of shows about house flipping and real estate. Anyway, Tom continues. I look at what is going on in a practical way, such as where did all the rocks come from for the swamp road? Is this where the bol- is this why there is a boulderless beach? Tom, maybe. But the boulderless beach got its name because the rocks that are missing from that beach are really huge boulders, not the smaller kind we've seen so far in this feature. Now, perhaps underneath this top layer we will see here are much, you know, perhaps underneath this top layer we're seeing now, we'll see much bigger boulders that are used for sort of a foundation, but we haven't seen that yet. And we're going to get to this in this episode review. So hang in, hang on tight there for this one. Uh, Rick mentioned something about this, but again, let's, let's hang on to that. Tom continues with all the excavation and digging that the Laginas and their partners have done and are doing. Does the Canadian government expect the Island to be put back to quote unquote, as found condition? Will Samuel Ball's house foundation be made into a national site or covered back up? Now, Tom, I can't answer either of those. I can only guess. I can't imagine as found is exactly what it, uh, you know, is exactly what their agreement says. I mean, they are property owners, so they do have some kind of leeway as to what they can do with it. 
But I think they can't just destroy the place, right? I think that kind of is what's been put into place more recently. And you could see the Laginas are doing their best, not all, they're not not to leave it in as found condition, but almost to put it back to a condition that it was before they even came around. Um, there are laws in place. And I just can't comment with any real knowledge on those laws. Also, I think the Samuel Ball House could be made into a permanently protected site. But I think that decision will need to be made by Laird after he sees exactly what he uncovers, whether the site is actually deserving of such protection, if there's anything there to protect it. He also he continues, is there only one person, Gary Drayton, doing metal detecting on such a target-rich island? I believe so, to answer your question there. It's a small island. Okay, anyway, Tom finishes. Uh, With the enormous amount of work that they have done, is there a crew of laborers? I can't believe that Marty, Rick, and Craig are using shovels all day. Thank you. Keep up the great podcast. Sincerely, Tom in Utica, New York. Tom, on that last part, yes. Besides all the people we see in the quote-unquote cast, Scott Barlow and Billy Gerhardt, have small crew have a small crew of workers doing their thing um, and doing other things that we don't really see a lot of. Before today, we've only seen them on a few. Before this episode, we're about to get into, we've only seen them on a few little things like the sorting table and a couple things like that. But they're obviously there doing stuff off camera. Somebody's helping Billy bring the equipment on and off and operating the equipment, and all that. But it's funny that you asked this question before this week because this episode kind of answered itself. Uh, We see them more in this week's episode than we ever have before, right? And, of course, Tom, there is always a crew there also with the various drilling companies and such. Um, So you see, yes, there are more people than just the cast. Thanks again, Tom. That was a great email. Uh, Our friend and jock in Vancouver, um, the two of us exchange emails a lot on Oak Island. Uh, He sent me a photo of a stack of books and uh, and and also he got all of these he got from his local library, and the stack also included a DVD. Jock wrote this: the DVD "Treasure" by the A and E by A and E is quite interesting. All the points in history are mentioned. Uh, it is interesting to note that the published date in 1998 was uh, 23 years ago, and the same theories are still being tossed around. I took an audio recording of Fred Nolan. Uh, which sounds very reminiscent of our Lagina friends. He also did one of Robert Restall. Uh, this is what all treasure hunters say. I probably would say the same. Same, same. Probably say the same. Copying it might be an infringement, so don't play it online. I think I might spend a day listening to it and take some notes before I return it. Cheers, Jock. Well, first of all, Jock, thank you so much for your legal concern. But it's a very short clip. I think we're going to be okay. (laughs) So I'm just going to play a little bit of it because this is fascinating. This is a clip from Fred Nolan back in uh, an interview that aired in 98. Not 100% sure where the interview uh, took place. So here's Fred. It's been a long time. I don't like talking about all the years that are probably put in here. But uh, well over 30 years now. But uh, the longer we stay at it, the, uh, the, the more of the pieces of this puzzle that we're able to gather up and put in place. I can say this, we're closer now than we've ever been. We're, we're, coming, down, we're coming down the stretch now. Now I know I, I talk a lot about this stuff, but boy, I am fascinated by when I hear things like this by the mindset of a treasure hunter. I guess like anything that uh, requires a leap of faith, right? So many treasure hunters are totally convinced there's something there, a pot of gold at the end of this rainbow. Even while the rest of us might scratch our heads and wonder why they're so darn convinced. And what better example of this really, this whole phenomenon than Oak Island, right? I mean, 
I've looked at this evidence for years and years. I'm not convinced there's a treasure there. Not convinced by any means. A mystery for sure. But the hard evidence of an actual treasure is lacking. I mean, possible, but it's certainly not something I'm convinced of. Um, but we are up to our ears here in hearsay and legend. And I guess that's enough to convince so many of these guys throughout history to put in so much time and money and effort and have such faith and such hope. Anyway, I applaud them for their effort and for their faith. That's a great email, Jack. Thank you so much for sending that along. Now let's finish the email section here today with a longer email from a listener named Ginger. She writes, hi, my name is Ginger and I've been watching the show since the beginning. What baffles me is that I'm still watching. Ginger, while uh, watching this week's episode, like I said, my wife looked at me and said almost exactly the same thing you just said. Now, before we get into this email, let me just say this uh, before we get, because there's a lot of criticism in here and um, I just want to put right off at the top, I don't agree with you. I don't agree with my wife on that either. Um, I think it's a great mystery, and I do think it's a great show, and I'm I'm all in on the people who are involved in it, and I'm rooting for them, and I want them to be able to solve this mystery. I really do. Anyway, she continues. I agree that the constant repetition of every little thing is done every episode by the narrator drives me insane. I am also baffled by the amount of time, effort, and expense to have Eagle Canada perform the seismic scanning of the swamp when they were, weren't even able to show the rock road that they are now digging up in season eight. Am I wrong here? I don't remember them being told about this massive giant road. We've known about a small portion for a very long time, but they never before knew that it was a lo as long as they are fi now finding. The seismic things they show on TV look like a whole lot of nothing to me. When they show the voids, in quotes, on some of the reports, some look blue or pink or whatever. And Gary's tunnel tester thing, if he could tell on the snake mound that there wasn't any tunnels, why can't he go to the money pit area and map out the tunnels there instead of going through all these tiny little boreholes? Okay, there's a lot here, Ginger. I, I understand that you're, you know, that you're hanging on by a thread here. I've quite from reading this, I wonder why you're still hanging on. But that's, you know, that I'm glad you are. Uh, let me answer a few of these here and try to take them in order. And you have more to go through, so let's let's do this. Um, let me also say, before we do this, I've heard all of these questions that you put out here, all of them, from other viewers on social media, all with the same sort of skepticism and almost exasperation that you're showing here. So you're not alone. Uh, and I'm using you and your questions here as a way to address a lot of these things that we hear over and over again. Okay, first let's let's talk about Eagle Canada. I have to punt here on this one a bit because I am not an expert on what seismic scanning can find. The depths, the type of things it's meant for. Um, I know it's designed to find anomalies and rocks aren't anomalies underground. And specifically, they're meant to find deposits of like natural gas and that kind of thing and oil and, and at depth. And really not to map out rocks near the surface. That's just not what it does that's not what it's made for and there you got to remember nobody has ever made a seismic or <laughs> scanning tool of any kind designed specifically for finding treasure all of these pieces of technology all of this science everything they're doing they're applying stuff that has a place here that certainly has an application here 
but is not designed for specifically this. So you have to keep that in mind. Now, if someone has a better, more informed answer on this, please let me know. I know I have a few geologists out there and scientists who listen to the show. Tell me if I'm wrong about what seismic scanning could and couldn't do. Um, I'm just not an expert on it. I also think it's very possible that in the parts with Eagle Canada that we've seen, that somewhere that didn't make the show, somebody said, oh, and you know, there's a lot of rocks near the surface over there. And it, you know, you might want to look at that. And we just didn't see it. And they, the show and the editors make it look like this is something that the team discovered. I mean, that's just speculation. But it is possible. Keep that in mind. Uh, remember, they're out there to look at this anomaly and tunnels. And that's the exciting stuff. Some rocks on the surface that, hey, maybe these look like they're in a weird spot. I can't imagine that's something that's going to make the editor's final cut here you know anyway now gary's tunnel tester the dreaded okm exp 6000 which we've talked a lot about in previous podcasts uh does not detect tunnels all the way down to 89 feet i think it might be able to detect metal to a maximum of 69 feet that's the absolute bottom it can go um but i'm not sure if the tunnel detector can even go that far down or how accurate it would be down to, I mean, we're 20 feet off, so we're not even close, right? But Ginger, I guess what I'm wondering is why would you assume that Gary and this team wouldn't know that the tunnel tester would work here? I mean, why would you assume that? My, my thought is he probably did run it over, and guess what? Didn't find anything. Found a lot of not nothing, a whole lot of nothing. Uh, because everything is supposed to be lower than what this thing can do. Uh, you know, I just don't understand why you would assume they wouldn't know to use it and wouldn't use it. Are, are you suggesting that they're doing that? They're not using it because they don't want to find things and they just want to continue on with the show? I'm not sure really what you're implying here. I mean, anyway, Ginger continues. And, and again, that's not just a question for you, Ginger. That's a question for so many other people. Are you just assuming they don't know? Are you assuming you know more about this gear than Gary does or who's probably has the, the manufacturer helping him use it? Okay, let me, Ginger continues. Also, if you remember a few years ago, they were digging in the swamp and Gary says, it's a tunnel in the intro, but it never goes anywhere. Way down near the shore, when they were digging at Smith's Cove, they found a tunnel. But because it was unstable, they covered it up and forgot about it. What? I would have driven steel beams in and a round wooden structure and supported it while I dug into it, dug into it to figure out where it goes. How can they just ignore the tunnel entry again? Be let me stop here. Because what you're assuming is you saw the whole story, guys. You're assuming you saw everything. Now, we're into an area that bugs me a lot, okay? They show what the show likes to do is show us something, some possible breakthrough, something that seems mysterious at first. And then we just kind of leave it and it's never seen again. And I am convinced that 99% of the time it's never seen again is not because it was too difficult to do, because God knows that isn't an issue, but it's because the further research they did off camera, so to speak, showed us that. There wasn't anything there. And the producers decide not to tell us when they don't find something, right? Not to show us that part of the story. Instead, what they want to do 
is try and leave it with just sort of another mysterious thing hanging out there in our subconscious. Um, you know, so what most likely occurred here is they realized that it was not a tunnel entrance and the producers just didn't think finding out it wasn't a tunnel entrance made a good made for good television. I mean, they never want us to cross anything off, right? And you're right with this one. This is annoying, Ginger. And I and I want to know when we can cross things off the list, but they don't want us to know that. They rarely ever do. When we get even a glimpse of it, it's usually something very fleeting and something very passing, or even in like something Matty Blake says if you weren't watching that show or something along those lines. You just they clearly don't want the viewers to ever cross anything off the list, even if the team crosses it off the list. So what I tell people all the time, if you don't hear about it again, like a tunnel, come on now. Do you really think the team sees a tunnel and doesn't follow it or doesn't try to figure out what it is? I mean, honestly, there's no possible way. There's just no possible way. They're going to follow every lead they can follow. Certainly a tunnel, for God's sake. I mean, but we just don't see when they do their extra looking or do their poking around and they realize, nah, it's not a tunnel. <laughs> anyway, Ginger continues. They've been told by a lot of people that a tunnel is under the swamp. Why don't they think the rocky road is the top of the tunnel? There are huge beams below the rocks. Why don't they wonder if it's not the top of a tunnel? The whole thing blows my mind. Seems to me it would be smart to pursue one thing at a time on the show. They bounce around so much, show after show. I just don't think the producers know how to present this story in a meaningful way. If they're trying to build intrigue, to me, they're building contempt. Watching the same thing over and over makes me not mind missing it a few weeks and fast-forwarding through the DVR version when they do this. Thanks for expressing your frustration. I'm sitting at home wondering what in the world the producers are thinking. Glad to know others are as bothered as I am. Thanks, Ginger. Okay, first of all, Ginger, thank you so much for this email. I love it. I love your passion behind it. And like I said in the beginning, I think you represent a lot of people here, even though I don't agree entirely with a lot of what you're saying. Okay. When you say the team has, quote, been told by a lot of people there's a tunnel under the swamp, I'm not really sure what you're referring to. I don't know of anyone with scientific evidence of such a tunnel. Now, if I'm incorrect here and I'm forgetting something, because really I'm just working on my memory from the show, please excuse me and please somebody let me know what she's referring to. I know about this ship anomaly. We've talked about that a million times before, but I don't know about a tunnel. But the thing is, Ginger, I don't know. I, I guess I'm not just as far down the road of contempt here as you are. I've said this a lot, you know, especially this season. And let's talk about this season, okay? I've, I've said two things a lot. Number one, the, the, the producers decided in season one that they are never going to ignore a first-time viewer. They're never going to ignore somebody new to the show. They're always going to repeat what they think is pertinent information. They're always going to do that. We have to accept that. They've done it for years. They're going to move on. Yes, there's a lot of repeating on this show. That's the format of the show. I don't see that ever changing. And I, I don't like it, but I don't necessarily disagree with it, and I've learned to live with it. But also, about this season in particular... We need to keep in mind, folks, that the producers this year, because this, this year has had more, <laughs> more complaints from fans than ever before. We all have to remember what the summer of 2020 looked like. And they are working with something probably near half the footage that they normally have because of the COVID 
because of COVID, severely shortening their dig season. They, these guys weren't on the island until July. They're usually in there May and April, right? But they couldn't do it then. So they're working with a lot less footage. But they decided before the season that they wanted to make as many episodes as they have in the past couple of years. They wanted to produce a lot of episodes. It's good for everybody. It's good. it's good for advertisers. It's good for the History Channel to have content. It's good for us because we have content. But they're forced to do this, to make all these episodes with not nearly as much raw footage as they've had to work with in the past. Now, maybe at the end of the year, we'll conclude that that was a mistake on their part, but we just need to keep that in mind. Look, here I am being the Prometheus apologist here. <laughs> I mean, but I do think we need to keep that in mind. And I say that to my wife all the time. Why are we, she always asks me, why are we seeing ox shoes? Well, there's two reasons. One, We've seen a lot of ox shoe nails because they're metal detecting in a place that they really haven't done much before. But also, in the past, that probably wouldn't be as interesting to find so many of them. But they just don't have as much time to find as much stuff as they have in in past years. So we get this this year. I get it's frustrating. Maybe they should have cut this down to 15 episodes this year. But then we would be complaining that we didn't get enough episodes, (laughs) you know? Thank you, Ginger. It's very important to air these grievances. I really do feel that way. Even though we might not be entirely on the same page here, your email is very representative of a large group of viewers. And I think these things are important to discuss now and again. Thank you for your honesty. Now, having said all of that, I'm about to take a break. And when I come back, I'm going to do a lot of complaining about this week's episode of The Curse of Oak Island. Don't forget, if you guys have any questions or comments for me, send them along to digginoakisland at gmail.com. All right, so let's get to Season 8, Episode 17 of The Curse of Oak Island called Staking Their Claim. I'm going to start this week's episode review over at the Money Pit. Now with Ginger's email still in mind, I just want to say this to all the viewers of the show. They are not, I mean, and I mean this sincerely, folks, they are not going to end this season with a treasure found at the money pit. I'm just telling you now, you've all been warned. Okay. Discussion of the money pit actually begins at the war room with a discussion between Marty Lagina and Craig Tester. They're following evidence of a tunnel in the Northwest section of the money pit area that they've been exploring the last few episodes. Now, even the most skeptical among us has to admit that this is a fascinating little project and a really cool little find here. This, this, For one, they're finding wood in an area once thought to be just too far away from the target to even bother looking. And also, the wood that they're finding is consistent. They're finding multiple holes uh, and putting multiple holes in the ground and finding wood at 87 feet. So this seems to be pretty, pretty cool. Um, and it seems to be the evidence is there that they're on a tunnel. The other thing here is Craig has carbon dated one of the pieces of wood found in one of these holes. I'm not sure which one. It's hard to follow which one he's saying, and I can't remember the names of the holes and all that stuff, and I'm not looking at the chart as he's pointing at it. But it dated 1648 to 1694. And even at its newest, that's a full century before the discovery of the money pit. So this, if this is indeed a tunnel, which was built with wood from that era, I mean, they have to follow this lead. There's no two ways about it. This is fascinating. Um, so the rest of today's work at the money pit really is about following this lead. Later, we see Terry Matheson and Charles Barkhouse, and they're over there and they're digging a new hole. I believe they called it BC4, and it's more to the northwest than the other holes they've dug so far This in this new area fi- following this tunnel. 
They find wood, only this time it's at 78 feet. It's a lot shallower, almost 10 feet shallower than the other holes. And then they, again, maybe find some smaller pieces at 87 feet. Now, there's a lot of conjecture back and forth about what this might mean, but really, there's nothing definitive here. The point here is twofold. One, this tunnel search is going to have its ups and downs. They're going to put a hole in the ground and miss it, and then maybe a few feet to the other side, and they'll hit it again. We don't know, right? But there's going to be some ups and downs. But more importantly, I think this just might be one of those scenes we would have not seen, okay, in past seasons. Goes back to what I said at the end of the email section. There just wasn't much here. They put a hole in. They found maybe a little something that just wasn't there. Uh, you know, now maybe that'll change. Maybe this find at 78 feet will mean something. But I think that the editors are just not cutting as much out as they have in the past. Right? So we're getting this scene at the money pit. We're getting a whole, after having a few episodes in a row where we had some really fascinating stuff at the money pit, we get this episode where we have a few scenes, we talk a little bit about it, but there really isn't much, really isn't seeing much. And I think in past we would have had that taken away and we never would have seen this, but now we are. It's just the nature of the 2020 season, I think. Either way, let's take a little break again here and we'll come back and talk about this. So the episode begins with the team taking historian Terry DeVoe over to the swamp to get his take on things. Um, I need to try to get in touch with Terry. I've seen Terry before, and he he showed them some other artifacts in Nova Scotia. Uh, but I'm a little confused by something. He's known on the show as a historian, but from what I could find, his background is actually in engineering and marine acoustics. Anyway, he's a crazy smart guy who's local, and he is also has a great hat, right? So I, I don't want to sound like I'm complaining or questioning it. I'm just kind of confused about... I mean, he doesn't seem to be a history professor or something like that. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I'll try to get in touch with him. Terry is here to look at the road that they're finding in the swamp. And at one point, uh, Rick says it's still, quote, unquote, way too premature to draw conclusions on what this road was built for and by whom. Uh, Terry says that he can say that the technique of building here doesn't match the techniques of road building from the colonial era or later. So, therefore... It's possible that it's, that it's older than the colonial era, which dates to about 1607. I guess the question I would ask is, how many roads has Terry seen built in a swamp like this? I mean, do we have anything to compare to? Do we need, you know, sure, all things considered, it's not a normal road. <laughs> but it's also not put in a normal place one would put a road. So uh, that's just the only question I have. It's important to keep in mind that Terry said... It could be, in quotes, older than the colonial period and didn't say anything like it must have been built by the Templars or it's medieval. Somebody threw out the word medieval in there somewhere. I forget where. It's just he's not saying that. It's incredibly important for us as fans to not do what the narrator does and to not draw conclusions from things like this. Listen to what the guy says and take what he says into account. And that's all. All we have here is a local historian, a super smart guy, telling us that this feature looks, as he's peering at it, to be old. And it might even be older than the era of colonial, European colonial, you know, settlement, colonization. And again, that began about 1607. So that's all we're saying. It could be from before that. 
don't know by who. We don't know for what reason. Just that it seems that way. And he's fascinated by it. Later, when we go back to the swamp, Rick says that the stones in the road, quote, were not from the beach, end quote. I mentioned this because earlier our listener, Tom, asked exactly this same question in the email section. Now, I'm not 100% sure what the details are in the conclusion Rick is making here, but there you go. Rick says that the stones are not from the beach. The team finds evidence of what is likely a fire pit, a sign that indeed (laughs) people were here working on this. Now, the team has mentioned on a few occasions about the lack of artifacts, essentially the lack of evidence that humans were here doing anything, no less working. But here you go. Here's a little piece of that. I mean, you can clean up after yourself, but you can't clean up the, uh, you know, you're not going to clean up the dirt you, you burned up, right? Later on, Gary comes in to detect with Michael John, who works with uh, Billy Gerhardt's crew. And they find some round iron object. I'm not sure what it is uh, from, from what they're seeing here, but it's like this round ring of some kind. Almost looks like a, I don't even know how to, how to describe it, like a bracelet or something like that, but not. Almost, it, looks, it looks industrial to me. Um, let's see if we see anything about this. Um, the fact that they didn't take it to Carmen Leg might say that this wasn't anything big, uh, but sometimes they do that in later episodes. So let's see if we go and bring this back up in the coming weeks. If we don't, you know why. Now, later on in the episode over by this fire pit they found, Gary finds an old hand-forged iron spike. And towards the end of the episode, Marty is digging here again with Aaron Taylor and many people in Billy Gerhardt's crew over at the swamp for the question about are there other people on the swamp? Here you go. Here's your answer. You see a lot of them there in this episode. Um, They find a piece of cut wood. Uh, It's obviously part of a stake, if not the entire stake. Uh, The team seems to be very certain when talking about this and looking at this that it is a survey or marking stake. I wasn't so sure while watching this um, whether or not it was, but before I bother even thinking about that, it looks like from the previews that we might find more of these or talk more about it. So I think the best thing here to do on this particular stake, even though it is the uh, source of the name of this week's episode, is to just sort of hold our opinions over until we get whatever information we're going to get next week. And then we'll know what this stake is really all about. All right. Interestingly, the most exciting area to discuss in this week's episode is over at Lot 25, the former home of Samuel Ball. Now, this area begins with Rick and Gary metal detecting, and they find an old copper coin. And I'll just say again, let's keep this in the back of our heads um, and see if they follow up with what this is. I mean, who knows? Right. We didn't really see much of any any of it. Um, So let's see if we go back to it. If not, we know it wasn't anything. But then they also find another artifact. What Gary thinks is a cane topper. It's just sort of a couple inches tall cylindrical piece with obviously some sort of design over the top. As they clean it up, it looks like pretty clearly on first glance that it's a crown. Now, when I first saw it, I thought it was possibly military. I think that might have been uh, Gary's bombarding us with a cane topper or a riding stick or a swagger stick um, that was making me think that. But certainly the crown makes you think of British military. 
it just sort of made sense. Um, you know, over the years, there's been so many crown designs incorporated into British military regalia. Uh, it just it just all seemed to fit for me. Now, a few minutes later in the interpretive center, we see Doug Kroll. He's cleaned it up a bit. And at this point, when he showed, when we see it again, it looked a lot less military to me. Just not as detailed as I would expect, not as formal as I would expect. It kind of seemed more more decorative. Um, and just, I don't know. It looked a little more modern to me. I don't even know why I say that, but just from that shot, we I paused it and we looked at it, and my wife kind of felt the same thing. It just suddenly just didn't look very um, military. Uh, it's a crown and a rose emblem. Again, the thing is, these are extremely popular <laughs> uh, symbols to use in all sorts of designs for centuries in Britain. Not just by the military. All sorts of places. God, there, I can't tell you how many pubs I've seen called the Rose and Crown. Gary says it could be the top of, I mentioned this before, a swagger stick. And what they're leaving out here is the part where I think, um, where he comes to this conclusion. The reason why he thinks that it's a swagger stick is because it's too small to be the top of a cane topper or, uh, you know, top of uh, certainly top too small to be the top of a walking stick. It'd be a very skinny and long walking stick and probably too small even for a riding stick. Swagger sticks were these standard issue things. You see the military officers holding them, um, you know, for ages. They probably came from the riding sticks used by cavalry officers or I think there might even be a little bit of a Roman influence in these things. Marty thinks this thing might be gilded, meaning it's ornate and expensive. It's hard to tell really from looking at it. Incredibly... <laughs> The narrator here suggests that this piece might actually be part of the treasure itself. And that's going to be hilarious in just a few seconds. So hang on to that. Later in the episode, at the very end, we're in the war room and we're talking to a historian named Sarah McGinnis. She's from the fortress at Louisbourg, which is this incredible military fortress at the end of uh, Nova Scotia on Cape Breton Island. Uh, she's a military historian for sure, since this is a military installation fortress. And she's looking at this artifact. Now, it's in this scene where Laird Niven had me rolling on the floor. This possible priceless military artifact, this thing that the narrator thinks could itself be a part of the treasure, was in this very qualified and brilliant archaeologist's mind, Laird Niven, to mostly, most likely just be the top of a piece of a lipstick. <laughs> I have to say, guys, if you're someone... Anyway, the, the, the scene ends. Uh, there's not much here. We don't glean much from what this could be. Uh, I couldn't help but thinking of lipstick from that point forward and, and laughing at Laird's incredible honesty and wishing that we had gotten this, you know, a half an hour before. Um, but anyway, the scene ends. And I have to say this. If you're someone who watches previews and uh, puts any stock into what you might see in the future, thanks to these previews, I want you to do yourself a favor. Go back and watch the previews again for this episode. You can find them online. And then look at how this scene ends up playing out. And please, folks, for the love of God, for your own sanity, stop worrying about the previews.
All right, that's going to do it for this episode of The Curse of Oak Island. Kind of a strange one today, huh? (laughs) Please subscribe to the show if you don't already, anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you are enjoying the show, uh, please do us a favor. Leave us a five-star rating and leave us a review uh, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help to get the word out on the show, um, and it helps to bring more listeners to us. A big thank you to everyone who has done so already really do appreciate you taking the time to do that. And mostly, I appreciate the kind words that you've given us there. Thank you so, so much. This is a labor of love. Also, if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email at diggingoakisland at gmail.com. But a little warning, keep in mind, if you send me an email or a message, I just might answer it here on a future podcast. So if you don't want your message read to the listening audience, just make me a note of that, okay? Uh, You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We are at Digging Oak Island. Uh, Give us a like or a follow there. That would be much appreciated. It's a great way to follow the podcast. And it's a great way to interact with other listeners of the show, too. And there's some great stuff going on on there. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.